When I was a boy, my family attended the National Finals Rodeo for 10 straight years. It was a treasured experience. I mean, everything about it was brilliant. The bulls were perhaps the most amazing. In, ca in case you don't know, certain bulls become famous. You see, 50% of a bull rider's score is based on the, the bull, comes directly from the bull. So cowboys keep track of what bulls are going to be at a competition. I want to introduce you to just a couple of the ones that the cowboys spoke of in hushed and reverent tones. The, the very names of these bulls really tell the story. Tornado. This is Tornado. He threw 226 cowboys. 226 riders over a 14-year span. No one rode him the required eight seconds. You know what happened? A number of cowboys, when they were in a rodeo and they saw that they drew tornado, they just, they just resigned the competition. Finally, Freckles Brown rode tornado for the full eight seconds. He did it at the National Finals Rodeo in Oklahoma City. Uh, a few years later, the city, my old hometown, erected a, uh, a marker, not to Freckles Brown, they, they erected a memorial to Tornado. Uh, here's another one. Bodacious, meanest bull I have ever seen. Bodacious, bodacious would do this. I, I don't know of any other bulls that do this regularly. He would, he would fake the cowboy like he was going to buck, and then he would throw his head back so he could hit the cowboy in the face with his horns and his head. Look, look at this bull. This is many thousands of pounds of bull, and look at how high he is off the ground. I could go on and on, but you get the point. When you're a cowboy and you draw a, a bull named Bodacious or Tornado or Sudden Death, you, you know a lot about him just because of the name. We're studying the scriptures behind the Apostles' Creed. The section we're going to look at today shifts to God the Son, and it employs four names and titles for God the Son. Together, these names... Well, they tell us a great deal about him. Here, let's start by reading the full creed together, shall we? Wherever you are, whenever you are with us, let's read the Apostles' Creed all together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you. Now, the section for today is, is this part, the Creed's brief description of God the Son. It starts with four names that show us just how powerful Jesus is. This is not a tame bull, and the names prove it. If you've got your notes up, if you're using your notes for a guide, um, you'll see the first name mentioned is Jesus. Now, open your Bible to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, it's the very first book in your New Testament, shouldn't be too hard to find, Matthew chapter 1, and here's the first appearance of that name Jesus in the New Testament, Matthew 1, 21. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She, this is the angel speaking to Joseph, talking about Mary, she will give birth to a son, and you're to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. 
That name, Jesus, Yeshua, Yeshua, it can be pronounced Joshua, Jesus, Yeshua. It, it, it indicates someone that is completely human that rescues people. Um, it's a rescuer. Look, those of you who took toilet paper to people who were stuck under quarantine, you are Joshua's, right? You're saviors. Seriously, that name Jesus means savior. Now, it doesn't, listen carefully, it doesn't mean what we Christians think it means now on, on this side of the cross. The name Jesus does not indicate deity per se. It just means that he is a human who rescues people. All right. Next, he's called Christ. Christ. Look here, John chapter 1. Andrew, that's Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John testify about Jesus. And Andrew followed him, meaning Jesus. He first found his brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. Christ is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew Messiah. Uh, Messiah... Messiah is different than merely a a Joshua, a lifesaver. Messiah or Christ carries a great burden of prophecy. There are literally hundreds of Old Testament prophecies about Messiah. These predictions indicate that Christ is going to be more than merely human. He will literally change the world, rather like a bodacious tornado. I believe in Jesus, Savior, Christ, the fulfiller of world-changing prophecy, the only son. The most well-known scriptural statement of this is in John 3.16. Let's read it together, shall we? John 3.16, all together, line by line. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Thank you. The, the phrase, do you see the phrase one and only there? That's a specific theological term. Um, on monoyenes. Uh, on yonomenes means one of a kind. It's a term for deity. It's a very distinctive word for a unique being who is fully God. This is, this is not a half-breed uh, in the sense of like Heracles. This is not uh, somebody who's, who's partly human, partly God. This is a unique being who is, whatever else he may be, fully God. The same words, uh, on monogenes, uh, they appear in John chapter 1, verse 18. Look, look how John 1, 18 describes Jesus. Same term. No one has ever seen God, the only God, on monogenes, the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. The Apostles' Creed is this incredible summary of Scripture. In just a few words, it captures Jesus' manhood, his messiahship, that he is fully God, and he's our Lord. Our Lord reads the creed. That comes from scriptures like, uh, like this one. Philippians chapter 2, verse 10. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee, every tongue. Jesus isn't Lord just of those who recognize him or follow him. He is Lord of all. The followers of Christ, followers of Christ are just smarter than all the rest because they're enjoying now and will enjoy forever what others will experience in a much less pleasant way. It, 
Look, think of it like this. It's like that, that classic scene in, uh, in a lot of fantasy stories, right? The great king is in disguise. Now, there are some people who, who recognize his inherent qualities. They treat him nobly. They don't really know that he is the great king, but they, they appreciate him. They follow him, right? When the big reveal happens in the story, then everybody suddenly takes a knee. Now, they all do so under judgment. They don't do it with joy like those who had followed the Lord before the revelation. Of course, I know, I know what you're thinking. In that uh, medieval knight voice that you use, probably with your visor down, you're saying, but, but that's only in make-believe kids' tales. Lift your visor, not so fast. Quite often, did you know this? Quite often, fantasy stories are the most real of all. J.R.R. Tolkien pointed out that fantasy stories are important greatly because they deal with deep themes whose truths rarely appear in the more realistic grown-up stories. Brandon Sanderson is a popular fantasy uh, writer of, of this age, and uh, one of his characters put it this way. This is Alcatraz writing in the book Alcatraz and the Evil Librarians. He says this, My experience has been that people don't recommend this kind of book at all. It is far too interesting. Different from those books invariably described as important, which in my experience pretty much means they're boring. So when people try to give you some book with a shiny round award on the cover, be kind and gracious, but tell them you prefer stories that are real. So when that cloaked king is revealed as the ultimate overlord in a fantasy story, we resonate with that because it's real. That is exactly what will occur with Jesus. And that is what is meant by Lord in the creed. Now, the creed goes on. Those are the titles of God the Son. The creed goes on to describe the life of God the Son. It says, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Okay, you're still open in Matthew, right? Matthew 1, 21. Back up one verse. Go back to verse 20. But after he had considered these things, talking about Joseph, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. When I taught a Christmas series on Joseph, we were reminded that there are four things, four things this revelation would have meant to Joseph. At that time, hearing that phrase, four things it would have meant. First, it means that Jesus is the truth bringer. You see, in Hebrew thought, the Holy Spirit brought God's truth to humans. The Holy Spirit inspired all the prophets. The Holy Spirit is the one who teaches through Scripture. Therefore, what, what Joseph's being told is this child, Jesus, will be the truth bringer. Joseph would have understood what Dr. Barclay uh, declared 1,900 years later. So then, Jesus is, this is what it means to be conceived of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one person who brings God's truth to men. Jesus is the one person who can tell us what God is like and what God means us to be. Jesus came to tell us the truth about God and the truth about ourselves. That's what conceived of the Spirit meant to Joseph. Secondly, it indicated that at least some people would be able to recognize truth. Now, the, the doctrine of illumination is fully revealed in the New Testament, but the idea begins in the Old. Here's the doctrine of illumination in a nutshell. Human beings are blinded by sin and ignorance, and only the Holy Spirit working through God's words can open our eyes. That means that Jesus is the very Word of God. He's from the Spirit. That means he will enable people to see truth. Third, of the Spirit means Jesus is creator. 
The, the Hebrew scriptures deeply connect the, the Holy Spirit with the work of creation. You can look this up in texts like Genesis 3 and Job 33, uh, Genesis 1, Job 33, Psalm 33, Psalm 104. The, the, the New Testament speaks to it as well. In fact, in the New Testament, Colossians is going to go out of its way to make sure we understand that Jesus is fully creator of every single thing that is. Fourth, the Holy Spirit is the agent of recreation. Therefore, being conceived of the Spirit means Jesus is the recreator. Um, Ezekiel shows that God the Spirit is going to bring the dead back to life. He's going to restore all creation, which, which I think really helps explain a very popular saying in the first century. Uh, in, among the rabbis in the first century, this was a really popular saying. God says to Israel, in this world my Spirit has put wisdom in you, but in the future my Spirit will make you live again. That's all present in the message from God's angel to Joseph. And that's what we confess when we say Jesus is conceived of the Holy Spirit. Now, as we discuss on the right side of our notes, Jesus was also born of the Virgin Mary. Luke chapter 1. Let's read Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came and said to her, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Mary is a virgin. Parthenos, Parthenos is a term that's used of her here. Listen, this is a word never employed anywhere in Greek literature for a woman who has had sexual relations. Parthenos is used exclusively for a virgin. Now that matters because it fulfills some really important prophecies. It also speaks to Jesus' supernatural nature. Now, there are many more proofs of Mary's virginity than the word parthenos, but we lack time to dive into them all today. Here's what I can do. I can testify the most logical conclusion, looking at all the facts, is that Mary was miraculously a virgin. Now, there are some Christian traditions that do a great job defending the evident truth that Mary is a virgin when she becomes pregnant with Jesus. And that's great, but... They sometimes make her out to be deity or quasi-deity. What they'll do is they'll say Mary dispenses grace. Look again at our Greek text and you will see why that cannot be true. Mary is a receiver of grace. Charito'o. Charito'o is the, the, word, the root of the word we render favored woman. Charito'o is, is someone who has received the beneficent, undeserved favor of God. Charito'o is the unmerited favor of God. Mary was blessed, favored by God. She did not inherently favor herself. She needed to be blessed by God's grace just as we all do. Arnold Fruchtenbaum is spot on regarding this. Uh, Arnold says in his book, Yeshua, Miriam, that's the Jewish rendering of her name, was being favored by God. She was receiving his grace. There is nothing in the text that even remotely implies that she herself was sinless. Miriam was a humble sinner, a truth she herself acknowledged when she says in Luke 1, 47, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Only a sinful person needs a redeemer. So clearly, Miriam was not sinless. God did not act because of her, but on behalf of her. The creed contains those four titles that describe God the Son. And it walks us through the life of God the Son, closing out his life summary by saying, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified. This is an incredibly brilliant summation. 
It captures a whole lot more than just the events of that Good Friday. It draws us into important, life-changing theology. Listen, it's not just that Jesus died on a cross. That's true, but that isn't a core belief itself. Thousands of people were executed and murdered on crosses. What's unique is that Jesus died exactly as Isaiah had foretold 500 years before. Look here. Look at Peter's statement. First uh, Peter chapter 2. He did not, this is a quote from Isaiah 53 verse 9. He, talking about Jesus, did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that, having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. And here he quotes Isaiah 53, 5, by his wounds you have been healed. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus' death is a substitutionary atonement for all of those who are his. If you trust Jesus, you are alive to righteousness precisely because he died with your sins. And that is what is meant by suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified. Amen? So did God the Son suffer for us. And the death of the Son is summarized this way in the Apostles' Creed. Was crucified and died. He died. Jesus was not mostly dead. Okay, if, if you're right now walking around the living room and saying in your Miracle Max voice, oh, he was only mostly dead. Um, the Apostle Paul has this response for you. In the voice of Valerie, he cries out, liar, liar, happening. Jesus died. He was fully dead. Flip over in your Bible. Leave Matthew. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, go to the east in your Bible, a few books to 1 Corinthians, uh, right after Romans, just before 2 Corinthians, which is astonishing. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and let's read what verse 3 says. Verse 3, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now look at this, the very next verse adds this definitive statement. Definitive statement. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried. Jesus died and was buried. That is not something one does to a living person, even one who is mostly dead. Um, burial is a sure indication that Jesus sacrificed. He died and was buried. Speaking of mostly dead, I hardly ever watch TV. Hardly ever. But I will never forget the night that I... I just happened to turn on David Letterman, and I saw this. Take a look and listen. Uh, okay, Bailey now. Bailey will play dead. What do we need to do here? Uh, anything, Mike? Nothing. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Bailey, play dead. Uh, play, hey. Play dead. <laughs> that was good. Play that. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Uh, there you go. Oh, buddy. Live. He's fine. Okay. That was great. Thank you very much, Bailey. Now. 
you, would, you wouldn't bury Bailey the Beagle, would you? No, because she isn't really dead. But Jesus was, and he was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. The creed next declares that Jesus descended to the dead. The actual phrase in our earliest Latin manuscripts we have of the creed is uh, descended ad inferos. Descended ad inferos. The Latin phrase has led to some huge debates because inferos has many possible meanings in Latin. And the scripture this is based on, which we'll examine in a second, has a somewhat unclear Greek. Um, So here's what happened. John Calvin translated the creed to say Jesus descended to hell because, Calvin reasoned, that Jesus went to hell to complete his humiliation as our sin sacrifice. Martin Luther also rendered inferos as hell, but Luther thought Jesus went to hell to show those demons that he fulfilled his mission. Uh, Charles Ryrie, a great theologian of the 20th century, he felt the creed writers meant the place of the dead, uh, not hell when they used inferos, because that's closer, he said, to what the scripture means. All right, so let's investigate the scripture. Here's the main scripture, the creed references there. 1 Peter chapter 3, 18 and 19. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. All right, here's the problem. There are a number of words in that last verse, verse 19, that are widely divergent in their ranges of meaning. They have very wide range of meaning. In fact, four, four of the terms that are used in that short verse, in verse 19, they, they are used very sparingly in the Greek outside the Bible. So it makes it hard for us to grasp what is intended. Here's two that are especially difficult, okay? Fuleke uh, is the word we translate prison. Now, that, that's a term used in many, many different ways in Greek. Fuleke can mean a prison guard. Uh, it's used for God's blessing, or it's used for down deep. And get this, in, in some manuscripts, it's used in all those different ways in the same manuscript, in the same passage. It also has a whole variety of meanings according to different law codes. The other toughie is poyeme. Uh, we render it went, and, and it, means, it means to travel. Remember when you used to be able to do that? It means to travel. But get this, religious texts, when they use uh, poyeme, they mean died. Homer uh, started that tradition. 8th century BC, and it was still done in Peter's day. If a religious text used pereome, it means, it means die. Now, the point is not to doubt our English Bibles. That's, that's not the purpose. We just need to honestly note that because of all of this, it is hard to triangulate on the true meaning of 1 Peter 3.19, much less to understand exactly what the Apostles' Creed has in mind in that line. Now, of course, that makes you ask another question. In your uh, John Calvin imitation, who spoke French, you're asking me right now, when, uh, what do you mean when you're confessing that Jesus descended? What do you think it means in the Apostles' Creed? Uh, I'm not certain. I'm so glad you asked. But here goes, John. I think, don't be offended, Dr. Calvin, I think Dr. Ryrie is uh, most likely correct. First Peter and the Creed are both referencing the place of the dead which is a specific location in biblical thought, and it's not hell. Uh, Pastor Joey Wustman explains this uh, in some comments. I like these so much, I put them in your notes so you could go back and study them and think on them later. Uh, Look what what, uh, Joey wrote. He descended to the place of the dead from the creed. 
means that Christ and his humanity experienced death as all humans do. His body was buried in the ground and his soul consciously remained in the place of the dead. The place of the dead is not the place of conscious torment, hell, but the compartment of Sheol. Sheol is a Hebrew word that means place of the dead. A compartment of Sheol, which is called in the Bible paradise or Abraham's bosom, where those awaiting the Messiah in faith waited for him and where they now dwell in the presence of the risen Jesus. That's really well said. Jesus' descent to the place of the dead is actually the ultimate affirmation of life. Let me show you one final word on this topic uh, from Matthew Emerson. Uh, We who follow Christ have the hope that Jesus already experienced death, the state of being dead with and for those who trust his atoning death and victorious resurrection. Amen. Speaking of hope. Our last portion for today concerns Jesus' resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of the Son is captured in this simple sentence. On the third day, he rose again. Jesus is alive. Oh my goodness, I think it is likely that some of you are actually sitting still. What we just read is the most hopeful, the most wonderful, the most amazing news. On the third day, he rose again. One simply cannot process that information with droopy... All right, let's do this. Let's do this. Stand up. If you're able... Right now, I mean it. If you're able, stand up. Right now, if you're able, stand up. You need waking up so that you can grasp this incredible great news. So to wake up your body and your soul, we're going to play your favorite game. It's called Simon Says. Yes, that's right. Here we go. Now, kids, here's how it works. Uh, I am Simon in the game, and you must do whatever Simon says. Don't be fooled and do what Simon does. It's, it's kind of like learning from your parents. You know, don't do what they do, do what they say. Okay, so anyway, um, Simon says, but I will tell you what to do by saying Simon says. And when I say Simon says, you do what Simon says. You ready? Okay, Simon says, touch your shoulders, not your face, of course. That's right. All right, now, now touch your elbows. Good. Yeah, really? Already? Okay, I didn't say Simon. Simon says, everybody's still in. Everybody's still in. Simon says, touch your elbows. Simon says, touch your shoulders. Very good. Simon says, touch your head, not your face. Simon says, touch your ears. Simon says, touch your shoulders. Touch your elbows. Simon says, touch your elbows. Touch your shoulders. (laughs) Okay. Touch your knees. Wow. Okay, that's just pitiful. All right. Simon says, touch your knees. Simon says, touch your hips. Simon says, touch your knees. Touch your hips. Simon says, touch your shoulders. Are you waking up yet? Simon says, touch your elbows. All right, now touch your ears. Good. (laughs) Touch the top of your head. Simon says, touch your shoulders. Simon says, touch your head. Simon says, put your hands out like this. Simon says, give yourselves a hand. Clap. Very good. All right. All right. Very good. Simon says, game is over. Kids, game is over. Simon says, sit down. Sit down. Calm down so we can finish our study. 1 Corinthians 15. 15. Three through four. What we were reading where you are in your text, look how it finishes. Uh, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Jesus is alive. Now look at the facts regarding Jesus' resurrection. I'm just going to throw a few of them at you. I think seven. I've got seven of them. There was a dead body from which water and blood flowed. The stone was moved away from the tomb. That, that was illegal. 
And it was impossible to do from the exterior with a Roman guard there. The Roman guards had fled. That was illegal as well. And and almost singular in all Roman experience. The tomb was empty. There were nothing but grave clothes inside of it. Uh, Over 500 people testified that the resurrected Jesus appeared to them. This one's really... This one's really worthy of some thought. Christian worship shifted to Sunday. That was a quantum change. I mean, Hebrew worship had always been the Shabbat, Saturday, but it moved to Sunday. And there's only one reason that could have happened, because that was Resurrection Day. The apostles and the other Christians died, died, rather than deny the resurrection. Those are overpowering facts. In his book on the Apostles' Creed, my old boss, Pete Briscoe, uh, observed this. He said, if you're coming from a naturalistic worldview, meaning that you you don't believe in any supernatural resurrection, you're going to need to come up with some natural explanation of those facts. You need some sort of theory that keeps Jesus dead. Pete's right. There are other possibilities people have tried to use. Uh, here Here are the main ones. First is the swoon theory. Which, uh, it, by the way, a, a, a version of this appears in the Quran. It was made popular by a theologian named H.E.G. Paulus. 1828, Paulus uh, wrote a paper that said Jesus didn't really die. He was just mostly dead. He, he swooned. Uh, here it is in summary. Hours of beatings, hanging on a cross, spear in his side, etc. made Jesus really tired. So after a couple of days with no food or water, he felt better. And he moved the 3,000-pound stone all on his own. As we said earlier, Miracle Max's wife has the best response to this. Liar! Humpadink! The swoon theory is, it's just ridiculous. Next possibility comes courtesy of this guy, Dr. Kirsop Lake. Early 20th century, uh, Dr. Lake taught at famous seminaries like Leiden in the Netherlands and Harvard in the U.S. Sadly, this very bright man made a fool of himself. He did so personally, divorcing the wife of his youth, marrying one of his former students who had to divorce her own husband and abandon their three children so she could hook up with old Dr. Lake. And Lake's poor choices extended to theology. He was determined to find a way to explain the scriptural text and yet not believe that Jesus was alive. So Lake said, you ready for this? Jesus' followers went to the wrong tomb. They were so upset that they just went and they found some empty tomb by accident. And they thought, they really thought that it was the one they had used to bury Jesus in. And before they could stop, they had spread the silly idea that that he had conquered death. I'm, I'm not making this stuff up. A somewhat similar idea is that the reports of Jesus' resurrection, all of those were based on hallucinations. Um, The 500-plus people who saw Jesus on multiple occasions were just all on like a bad trip, you know. Uh, uh, Seriously, mass hallucinations over an extended period of time in widely different... As people say in this age, I can't even. This is absurd. Okay, neither the wrong tomb theory nor the hallucination ideas, none of these are reasonable... Holding to these theories requires far more faith than the logical conclusion that is reached in the creed. Now, the final possibility is the theory the Sanhedrin actually paid to propagate 
that somebody stole and hid Jesus' body. Then they could claim that he was resurrected. Um, if you want to read more about this one, Matthew chapter 28 uh, contains this story. Matthew 28, the plot is in verses 11 through 15. Pete Briscoe shows the serious problems with this alternative, the stolen body theory. Uh, Pete asks, who in the world had anything to gain by stealing the body? The Romans had no motive. They just wanted Jesus out of the scene. The Jewish leaders had no motive. They were the ones who wanted him dead in the first place. And what about the disciples? I'm supposing they could get past the guard, which they could not. They were just thieves. They were idiots. That would mean from that day forward, they intentionally and passionately lived and died for something they knew was a lie. Close quote. Friends, the only possibility that makes any sense is that Jesus genuinely rose from the dead. The significance of this cannot be overstated. The, the rest of this chapter you're in right now, 1 Corinthians 15, logically and beautifully shows us the results of Jesus' resurrection. The big idea is that because Jesus is alive, because he is alive, we shall live like him. Placed in Jesus through that substitutionary atonement, believers in Christ didn't just die in him. We are resurrected in him. That means we can live every single day with confidence. As, as Tim McGraw would say, the Christian can live like you were dying. And that confidence causes Paul to end this chapter, the one you're in, 1 Corinthians 15, with this declaration. Look at the very end of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 57 and 58, which was a great song by Chicago. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. We have victory because of Jesus. Our work isn't in vain. But we all sometimes feel that everything we do is empty, right? Especially during a plague. We get depressed, wondering what we're doing that's truly worthwhile. I mean, life just seems like some kind of hopeless hamster wheel, right? The feeling's normal, but it is a lie. It is a lie. The things we do out of our life in the Lord are not in vain. However mundane the task, treating diaper rash, looking for work, fixing food, checking on parents and grandparents and kids or neighbors, answering 6,000 emails, or, or however spiritual the task, studying scripture, praying, sharing the good news of Jesus with people. It's all victorious when we live out our tasks as part of our resurrected life in Jesus. This is a, this is a major part of, of no stone being unturned, our, our annual theme this year. We excel in the Lord's work. We are continually shaped because our labor is never in vain. The believer in Jesus can be steadfast even if the economy crumbles around him. The follower of Jesus doesn't fear death. There is no sting in any plague or any persecution or any other threat. We are guaranteed resurrection life. The bottom line is that Christians can live differently. Christians can die differently because we believe, here, read it with me, just this section of the creed. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, 
was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. All God's people said, amen. Pray with me, please. Father, I want to pray especially for anyone who is studying with me today that has never believed on Jesus as Savior. Friend, listen. God loves you so much, just as we read about earlier. He loves you so much that God the Son, the one and only, who is fully human Savior, Messiah, He is the one and only Son, and He is Lord. He died for you. He came and died, gave up His life. No one took it from Him. He gave it up on that cross. He descended to the dead and he rose again on the third day so that if you believe on him, if you trust him for your salvation and him alone, you are placed in him and you follow him in resurrected life. Trust him right now. There's no no formula. This isn't paganism. It's just a relationship. Just confess to God, I... I need a Savior, because you do. We all do. Even Mary did. God, I thank you that you you gave your one and only Son, that Jesus, you, fully God, fully human, you died for me, and you rose from the grave, and I believe in you. I trust you as my Lord, my Savior, my one and only, my Messiah. If you just prayed to trust Jesus, please make sure that you, um, as you guys have been doing the last couple of weeks, indicate that on the live stream so we can pray for you and follow up with you. And now, Lord, I pray for all of us who are believers in Jesus that we will live differently, that we will be willing to die differently because the facts are worthy of belief. And those truths, those facts about Jesus, they, they change everything. We praise you and thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.